Well, good evening. Let's, um, let's open in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we, we come to you tonight and thank you for this privilege to gather together. Uh, we thank you for your word, uh, which indeed is, a, is um, where we find life, not because uh, of some mystical power in the word, but because of the one to whom your word points, your son whom you sent into the world. And so we pray, O oh Lord, that you would open our eyes to see his glories, to soften our hearts to receive uh, your word, so that we might more fully and more, more firmly trust in him and your goodness and the grace that you've shown us through Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue with our study in Christology, and um, I'd like to begin by just um, a, a quick review of where we've been and, and what we're discussing. Um, as I've, The point I've made from the beginning is that um, each week as we go through this study, we're not, uh, we're not introducing any new doctrines per se, but rather understanding how it is that we come to uh, the conclusions that we do concerning the person and work of Christ. That really is the subject of Christology, uh, answer to the question, who is Jesus of Nazareth? Who do you say that I am? He asked, asked, asked his disciples. We need to be able to answer that question rightly. And the second then is um, concerning his work. What did he come to accomplish? What did he accomplish by what he did? This uh, afternoon as I was reflecting further on the subject, I, um, I came to the conclusion that we can really crystallize these, uh, the answer to these questions into uh, two sets of statements. Three statements concerning the person of Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Christ, that is the Lord, and uh, that he truly became man. Of course, we need to flesh those out. We have, and we'll continue to do so. But when we think about Jesus' person, we confess that he is God the Son who became incarnate, who, who took on flesh without ceasing to be fully God himself. When we speak about his work, we speak about uh, really seven historical realities, seven truths in history. We think of the uh, virgin conception of our Lord, that he came. He, was, he, uh, he took on flesh by being um, conceived through the, uh, the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit as he overshadowed Mary. So we speak of the virgin birth, or more properly, the virgin conception. We speak of a, a second point, and we can, we can couple the second and third together, concerning Jesus' mighty works and his authoritative words. In our creeds and in our confessions, we sometimes gloss over these points, but I do think they're important. We'll see this as we go through John, that especially with his mighty works, his miraculous deeds, they testify as signs to who he is. They're important, an important aspect of the work of Christ. We speak also of his um, suffering and his death when we speak about the work of Christ. But it's not enough simply to acknowledge that these things took place. Of course, we have to rightly interpret them. We have to understand why it was that he, uh, why it was that it was necessary for him to suffer and to die. And, and it's uh, in part because the scripture uh, had to be fulfilled, because the prophets predicted that this would happen beforehand. And yet it's more than just simply a matter of checking a box and, 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 and proving true the word of God. There's a there's a uh, fuller purpose in terms of the atoning work that he accomplishes for us. And we could exhaust ourselves, and we will uh, spend the rest of our lives thinking about the work of Christ and what it is that he accomplished in coming to die for us. But at the very uh, foundational sense, we, we need to recognize that he suffered and he died in our place to atone for our sins. We had then a fifth, um, uh, uh, that would be the, the fifth. We had, had then a sixth work, and we speak of the resurrection. Um, I should say, uh, yeah, the fifth work being his resurrection. And uh, again, here we have a fact of history, a crucial fact of history. But also we need to recognize there's a purpose, there's a meaning. That his um, resurrection is the means by which he conquers death. And the means by which he assures us that, um, that death will not be the end for us. That beyond the grave there is life eternal. And it's a resurrected life. Uh, not, not only a spiritual uh, life in eternity, but an embodied resurrected life in eternity. 
And the resurrection assures us of that truth. Jesus came to accomplish that, to destroy death forever. We also speak of his ascension in terms of his works. And again, this is like his uh, mighty deeds and and his miraculous works and like his authoritative words. This is one that's easy for us to overlook in our confessional statements, our creedal statements. But it's um, also quite important. You will see it there, certainly in the creeds, but we tend not to think as much about it. It's important because, again, the prophets said that it had to take place, that he had to ascend. Here you think of uh, Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And the apostles in the New Testament understood that this spoke of the ascension of Christ when the Lord said to him, sit at my right hand. He ascended to the Father, to the right hand of the Father from uh, uh, and from and there he intercedes on our behalf. He serves as our perfect high priest who mediates uh, this eternal covenant on our behalf. And that's uh, just one reason why his ascension is so crucial. Again, uh, another reason is that in his ascension to the Father, uh, he, he te- tells us in John, particularly in the upper room discourse, that this is, the, uh, this is what is necessary uh, for the Spirit to come the outpouring of the Spirit that the prophets promised, Christ himself said that he would accomplish in his ascension, then he would send the helpers, the language that he frequently uses in John 14, 15, and 16. I will send the helper to you. Speaking of the promised Holy Spirit, whom he would pour out. In Luke, we'll see um, that, uh, that event referred to as the promise of the Father, or the, gift of the, uh, the promised gift of the Father. And so the ascension is really crucial when we think about the work of Christ Uh, especially in in the fact that it leads to the outpouring of the Spirit upon God's people. And the final work, this is one where uh, we speak uh, in in a yet still future sense. The the seventh work um, would be concerning his return. That Christ, in fact, will return to judge the living and the dead. That at his return, the dead shall be raised, and uh, those who are left, we will be transformed at that moment. We'll speak more about that this coming Sunday evening from 1 Thessalonians 4. But I do want to just once again summarize these basic ideas concerning the person and work of Christ. We speak about Christology. Uh, On the one hand, I think hopefully what it does is it helps to assure you, those who who have been raised in the church, that, okay, just uh, I do know this stuff. I have learned this stuff. Uh, And so some big theological language sounds a little bit less scary. Uh, a little bit uh, less opaque. Um, uh, we can understand, yeah, we've been learning this, this kind of thing together uh, for a long time. You've learned this, for some, many of you, from a young age. Um, but I also want to then, as we continue to work through John, understand why it is that we know that these things are so. You see, it's one thing to be able to articulate doctrinal truth, just to say, well, this is what Christians have believed, and Christians do believe, and this is what I believe. It's another thing to know, why do I believe it? And what we've been seeing from John's gospel is that the argument that John gives us, if if uh, if we can call it that, uh, as he narrates the gospel, um, the argument is based on the credibility of various witnesses, that there are various credible, trustworthy witnesses who testify concerning the person and work of Christ. And they are commended to us for different reasons in different cases, as people whom we should believe. And so um, we looked, for example, at John the Baptist as a credible witness who testified concerning Christ, that he was sent from the Father, that though he came after John in terms of historical chronology, he was before John and he was greater than John. And uh, in fact, so uh, his greatness was so much superior to John's that John was not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals by his own testimony. If we understand that John is someone that we should trust, as we saw when we looked at his ministry, uh, then we ought to accept what he says concerning Jesus. Not, not only concerning his person, that he is this greater, uh, that's this greater um, one sent from God, this eternal uh, one sent from God, but also concerning his work. And supremely, John pointed to Um, three of those seven uh, aspects of Jesus' work that I had mentioned. Um, He spoke of his atoning death, 
even if John was speaking better than he knew when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He spoke of his um, ascension and, and the consequent outpouring of the Holy Spirit when he referred to Jesus as the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And he spoke of his return when he spoke of uh, the fact that Jesus would, um, would uh, stand finally as the judge of the living and the dead. We, we would look to, uh, especially to the testimony of the Synoptic Gospels, that last point, where John speaks of him as one who will not only baptize with the Spirit, but also with fire, and one who stands with his winnowing fork in his hand. So you recall then the testimony of John concerning the person and work of Christ. And if you remember in John chapter 11, how we noted the response of the people to John's ministry, uh, when they said, John did no sign, but everything he said about this man has proven true. Everything he said was true. What they recognized was that John, uh, John's credibility as a prophet, as we've seen from Deuteronomy 18 in past weeks, how the prophet is, uh, the true prophet sent by God, is um, his trustworthiness is demonstrated when his words prove true. Then it's seen clearly that he speaks as a messenger sent by God because his words prove true. And so we had the testimony of John. And then last week and this week, we're going to continue looking at the testimony of Moses. Um, now, the way I've identified well, who to look at as we've gone through this study was in the prologue is, is kind of, uh, you can think of it like the cast of characters being introduced. John, in those first 18 verses of this gospel, made mention uh, of specific individuals and groups whose testimony we're considering as we proceed through this gospel. And one of those individuals was Moses. And so you remember in John chapter 1, how he said this. In John 1, verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. In that explicit statement of verse 17, we're introduced to Moses and the way in which Moses relates to Christ. Um, the way in which there's an analogy between their ministries, but also uh, the way in which Jesus' ministry is superior to that of Moses. And in the broader sense, we see allusions. We saw allusions in verse 14 uh, to the way in which uh, Jesus brings to fulfillment certain aspects of Moses' ministry. And we think particularly of that tabernacle. The word dwelling among us, that he becomes flesh and dwells among us. That idea calls to mind the same ideas that we see when God's glory is um, manifest to Israel by as he makes himself to dwell in the tabernacle during those wilderness years. So uh, that kind of introduces us to the idea. But what we began then to see as we looked at a couple other passages was that uh, Moses continues to come up again and again in conversation where we, we can kind of group these ideas under three uh, headings. Is one is we see that Moses stands as a witness to Jesus. And here the idea is that those things that, when we say Moses, this can stand in for speaking about uh, the scriptures, particularly the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They testify, they bear witness as this document which Moses has written. They bear witness to the coming of the Christ. And this is made known to us in explicit ways and also through typologies. The second thing then we see is that Moses is perceived by those who do not believe in Jesus. He's perceived as someone who's a witness against Jesus. So there's some irony that we're going to see, continue to see, as we look at some further passages this evening. And then the third thing, then the irony is, is turned again, where we find that Moses actually does not just stand as a witness to Christ, but also as a witness against those who reject Jesus. So you, you see this flow of irony. Is he stands as a witness to Christ, but some perceive him as a witness against Christ, and so they don't believe in Jesus. And in, in reality, what we see is that he testifies against them as a kind of an accuser. Let me draw your attention then to John chapter 5 to give you the, the introduction to this. This, this is a passage we're going to come back to. 
um, as we pursue this study. So we're not going to dwell on um, every single particular here in John chapter 5. But let me set the context and then I'll present a few uh, verses to you. In John chapter 5 at the outset, we see there's a man who is an invalid and he's by a pool and it's a Sabbath day. Um, and at this pool, uh, the, the idea is that uh, every so often the waters will be stirred up miraculously and, the, and when a person can rush down into the water, then he'll be healed of his um, of whatever ailment he has. Now, John makes no comment for us to evaluate whether or not this really was um, what happened or what was perceived to happen. Or, or He doesn't say anything to that effect. It's just that we have this man who this is where his hope is in this pool, uh, Bethesda, and um, he's, uh, but he's unable to get into the water fast enough because he has no one to help him get down into the water. So Jesus comes along. And he asks him in verse 6 of chapter 5, do you want to be healed? And the sick man tells Jesus about his difficulties, how he can't get into the water fast enough. So Jesus commands him to get up, take up his bed, and walk. The man does it. He goes home. And as we might expect, that's, that's, uh, since John has notified us that this is a Sabbath day, he is uh, seen to be doing work by Pharisees or scribes or whoever the uh, particular individuals are that catch him, but they uh, confront him, and he tells these individuals that, uh, well, Jesus, the man who healed me, told me to take up my bed and walk. So this leads to some conflict, uh, and you'll find this in verse 15 then and following. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So we have a, so, some very clear Christological claims there, that Jesus is calling God his father, and the Jews who opposed him, and, and John as well, Understand that this claim is not one of, uh, of a subordination that makes him less than God, but it makes him equal with God. To be called God his Father in the way in which he is presented as the only begotten Son is a Christological claim of great uh, importance. It's a recognition that, the son of, that he is, as the Son of God, one who, in his essence, is God. It's interesting also to note that the reason why they have a problem with him is because of what he's doing on the Sabbath day. You associate the Sabbath with the Ten Commandments. You associate it with uh, Genesis chapter 2 and the seventh day of creation. And so you associate it with Moses, who wrote those things through whom God gave these commandments. Um, and they turn this then against him as a way to discredit him. His claims can't be right in their estimation. He can't really truly be sent from God. Why? Because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. And uh, we could always step away and say, well, is this really um, out of keeping with the Sabbath? Um, you know, is it possible? And I would, I would argue that, they, that this is true, that they've, they've corrupted the Sabbath by their own traditions, that they've established rules for Sabbath keeping that are not actually in keeping with Moses. And then what they've done is they've taken those traditions and they've displaced Moses' commands and they treat their own traditions as if they are really Moses' commands. But Jesus doesn't make that argument. Jesus' argument is, my father is working until now, and I am working. Jesus' argument is a Christological argument. Is that It's an argument from his deity. The idea is God upholds the heavens and the earth. Yes, he created the earth and the heavens, and he ceased from his work of creation on the seventh day. But that work was complete, and no more would there be creative work in this uh, until the new creation. But it doesn't mean he stops working in the sense of uh, doing what God does. It's not really possible. God continues to sustain the universe by the word of his power. And what's more, he continues to pursue his, um, his purpose, uh, his new creational purposes of redeeming people, of bringing about life where there was death. And this what Jesus has done for this man on the Sabbath day is an example of that. He's given life to a man that was essentially dead in terms of the, uh, 
He's a, he's, you could call him a, a, a living dead man in the sense that he has no strength in his legs. He can really do nothing. He's capable of nothing. And uh, Jesus comes and gives him life, which is ultimately what the new creation and the Sabbath rest point us to. Um, so Jesus is doing something that is proper to his divinity. It's proper to uh, uh, his status as the Son of God. And that's what... Um, that's the argument he gives for why he's doing these things and why it's not violation of the Sabbath. He's doing what God does. My father's working until now, and I'm working. Of course, they want to kill him for this. Now, as I've said, I've come back to, in a future week, come back to the rest of chapter 5, this lengthy discourse that, where Jesus um, talks about the various witnesses that testify to him. Um, we'll see uh, some repetition of these ideas but ultimately how the supreme witness that testifies to the truth of what he's saying is the Father, the Father's testimony concerning the Son. But I want to key on uh, from verse 39 then, in the midst of this discourse, what he says here. He says, you he's challenging those who want to kill him and those who are accusing him of breaking the Sabbath. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Earlier in this discourse in verse 26, he said, For the Father has life in himself, so he, has, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. There's this idea that in so much as the, um, the, the Son is God, he has life in himself as a self-existent source of life, same as the Father. But in so much as he is the Son, that he is from the Father, not having uh, been begotten in, in time, but always having that quality of begottenness where he's always from the Father. So he has that life in himself as a grant from the Father. So the, as he says, the Father has, as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And now we see this idea, the scriptures, they're searching the scriptures thinking I'm, we're going to find life in them. They're looking to the word of Moses and the law saying we're going to find life here. And they bear witness about Jesus and yet they refuse to come to him that they might have life. A little further down then on, in verse um, uh, 45, um, he says to them, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? So we have this conflict then where they think that they're following Moses in bringing these charges of, uh, you know, these allegations that Jesus breaks the Sabbath as a proof that he cannot really be the Christ. He cannot really be from God. He cannot really be who he presents himself to be. And Jesus says quite the opposite. Moses stands as your accuser and Moses uh, testifies concerning me and you fail to believe him, which is why you failed to receive me. The question then is, who is right? How is John going to show us who is right? Now, if we were to look at every aspect in John's gospel that deals with how Moses testifies to the person and work of Christ, it would really be a complete study of the entire gospel. So I do want to just kind of highlight a few things, but um, really focus on what we see in chapter 7 and then chapter 9 in order to bring this to a close. But there are two things that Moses does, or that, that John presents Moses doing, uh, that testify concerning Christ. We can categorize them as there's the explicit statements where someone, whether it's Jesus or someone else, explicitly claims that Moses wrote of the Christ. You, you remember in chapter 1, verse 45, when Philip went and got Nathaniel, he said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We've seen just now in chapter 5 that Jesus makes a very similar claim, that Moses speaks about me, that he testifies concerning me. We also see that uh, throughout, John, um, throughout this gospel that there are ways in which Moses does that, uh, does, uh, testifies that are perhaps veiled in some way, that are, that are subtle or they require us to understand how to, uh, how to recognize types and what typology is. So let me remind you then what typology is. Uh, the, the idea of a type 
this, this word in the Greek, it comes from this idea of uh, impressing, stamping an image on something, right? So you can think of if you go into a factory and they have a forge and you take a hunk of metal and that forge presses that metal into a shape based on the mold that it has. Or you think of a stamp and you put that stamp in some ink and then you put it on a page and it leaves, an imp it leaves a mark on that page that mirrors what the stamp looks like. That's the idea of a type. So God, providentially, in the course of history, as he governs history, has created certain people and institutions and events that in some way bear a likeness to Christ or to some other uh, fulfillment, some other thing that is to be fulfilled, whether it's the church or um, God's saving work in, in, in general. There are types in the Old Testament that then uh, point forward to uh, these, these points of fulfillment. We could also say there are types in the New Testament that point back to Christ. For example, um, uh, Paul will tell the Thessalonians that they have become a type of Christ by their life, by the way in which they live and exemplify a Christ-like humility and a Christ-like uh, love for one another. Uh, but when we talk about typology, that's not really what we're looking at primarily. We're looking at those Old Testament people, uh, places, events, uh, uh, events or institutions that um, point forward to Christ. And a few of the ones, I, I can list six, that John uh, uses throughout this gospel. One we've seen already is this idea of a tabernacle, that Jesus fulfills the expectation that was created in the tabernacle and later the temple. We can see this again and again. We saw it in, in the prologue in verse 14 and 18. You see it in chapter 2 when Jesus cleanses the temple and they say, what's the sign? What's the sign that you give us to, to, to validate why you're doing these things? He says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And then John tells us, they thought he was talking about the temple that, that uh, um, had been built after the exile, the second temple. But he was talking about the, his body as the temple. Later in chapter 4 when he spoke to the woman at the well, verses 20 through 24, she would ask him the question of where's the proper place to worship. Okay, you're a prophet. I understand that. I see that. Uh, our fathers say to worship on this mountain. Uh, you all say uh, you're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. Where's the proper place? And Jesus' answer is the days are coming and are now here when the true worshipers will worship neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, but the true worshipers will worship in spirit or truth. And here this idea um, is that Jesus in his coming displaces the temple, displaces the tabernacle, displaces the, the idea that uh, true worship is now, it ha has to be restricted to a particular place. And now true worship is uh, coming to Christ, the one in whom the glory of God truly dwelt. You see how that type works, that idea of correspondence, and yet there's something superior uh, about Christ and his coming. We saw a type last week when we talked about the ascent the uh, angels uh, ascending and descending on the son of man and that called to mind language that was similar to um, the way in which Joseph's dream is described when he dreams and he has he sees a ladder a, a staircase you could say leading up to heaven and uh, and uh, the angels are ascending and descending on it and here we have this idea that Jesus stands as the one who grants us access to God so not only as the tabernacle the one who in whom the glory of God dwells, but also the one who brings us to God. Or we could say more explicitly, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Right? That's what Jesus says. No one comes to the Father except by me. That's the same idea that's expressed in that typological language from chapter 1. We had last week in the conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus uses the language of uh, lifting up the serpent. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, I think back to chapter Numbers, and how... Um, the people were being bitten by these serpents that were killing them. And God told Moses, construct a serpent out of bronze, raise it up. If anyone looks at the serpent, he will live. He won't die from the serpent bite. In the same way, the Son of Man must be lifted up. So all who look on him, and here he's referring to, that, that not because I looked at some kind of image of a cross, but I, looking with faith. That is, I believe in the one who was lifted up on the cross for my sake. Just as Israel looked on the serpent, and believe that somehow this would heal them. I believe that my, I will be healed of my sin and I will find life eternal through that faith. You see a superiority in that development. 
because the Israelites were able to live a little bit longer in spite of the serpent's uh, bites. But Jesus enables us to find eternal life by looking on him in faith. Well, there's uh, at least three other typologies, um, and I just want to list them uh, quickly rather than look at them just for the sake of time. But the, one is uh, the idea of bread from heaven. After Jesus feeds the multitude in chapter 6, the 5,000, he tells people that I am the bread of life. Moses gave them manna in the wilderness, but he says you must eat upon my flesh if you are to have eternal life. And here he presents himself as the one who fulfills the expectation that was that was uh, placed by God giving the people manna in the wilderness. Uh, but as one who exceeds that, it's not so much, uh, you're not to take it literally that you're supposed to eat his flesh. You're to take it as a, um, as the way P Peter takes it later on, when he asks, when all these people are offended by what Jesus said, and he asks his disciples, will you depart also? And um, it's Peter who says, where will we go? You have the words of life, right? You have the words of life, right? That life comes through Jesus. And it's his words. Um, and receiving those words and believing him, that's what it means to feed on him, if that makes sense. Another typological uh, connection then would be later in chapter 7. We see this in chapter 4 with the woman at the well again as well. But when Jesus presents himself as living water, right? That I will give you living water. Um, you think of the water that flows out of the rock and feeds the people of Israel in the wilderness. Well, here, uh, chapter 7, verse 37, for instance, Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not, was not yet glorified. You see a pointing forward of the ascension of, the, of, of Christ and his uh, glorification and the outpouring of the Spirit that will come after that. And you can also see how the typology works. He's saying, you must drink of me, but he's clearly not speaking literally. When he says drink, he means believe in me, right? And when he says, rivers of living water will flow out of your heart if you believe in me, what he's referring to is the Spirit being given as the one who is the the river of living water. And here's this, uh, then, then a consequent idea of um, a people becoming uh, his servants in, in, in spreading the gospel and declaring the word of God and seeing people come and find that life as they receive the word that Jesus himself spoke through those who um, then um, believe and receive the spirit. So you see that kind of the, the, uh, one other typo typological connection. Back to the law. The final one is in the uh, idea of the Passover lamb. In 19, in, if you turn all the way to chapter 19, we already heard John say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I suggested that John might not have fully comprehended uh, the importance of what he was saying. We can't know for sure. We can't get into his mind and run around. But um, when we compare what he says in other places, we think maybe he's thinking in terms of judgment. Um, but in chapter 19, John makes this plain. Uh, this is where the, Jesus is on the cross, and, and they, they are going to go break the bones, the, break the legs of the men so they'll die sooner. And they find that he's already dead. So they don't break his bones. And in chapter 19, verse 36, John says, For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, They will look on him whom they pierced. That second passage comes from Zechariah. But the first one, um, it seems like it's a dual quotation. It comes from the Psalms, but it also uh, references back to Exodus. Psalm 3420 um, is, the, is the psalm uh, in question. You can turn there. Psalm 3420. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. This seems to be what he's quoting, and, and um, I would encourage you to reflect more broadly on the entirety of the psalm. Uh, I, I won't for the sake of time, um, but uh, I, I do think that when a psalm is, when, when a little bit of a psalm is quoted, uh, there's a good chance that the New Testament author has a broader context in mind, and he's thinking um, 
that the whole thing, uh, or at least a, a good portion of it, is uh, what's in view. But the other passage that that, that psalm reflects on is Exodus 12. And um, we read this recently in, in the, on Sunday morning. Maybe this past Sunday morning, I don't remember exactly, but in Exodus chapter 12, um, verse 46, what we're reading is uh, instructions for the Passover. And um, it's about how to prepare the Passover lamb. And it says, it shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. And you shall not break any of its bones. It seems what John is doing, learning from the psalmist who develops this idea, is to recognize that in this, uh, in this way he's showing how the Passover lamb and Christ share this important similarity, having no broken bones. Uh, in their as they're offered as a sacrifice, they're to have no broken bones. And um, it's not saying that, the, that Exodus 12 predicted it's necessary that the Christ should... Um, have no broken bones. It's kind of working. Uh, Psalm 34, we could say, predicts that. And in, in that way, connects the coming Christ back to the Passover lamb as a key characteristic that will show you that Jesus does what the Passover lamb signified. The Passover lamb could never really, truly atone for the sins of the people. Uh, as David says in Psalm 51, the blood of bulls and goats, that they, they could never really do that. It's the one who comes as the final, the fulfiller of this expectation. These are the ways, some of the really important ways in which Moses points to Christ and his person and his work. That he'll be that Passover lamb, that he'll be the tabernacle, that he will, the glory of God will dwell in him, that he will be, um, that he would be, uh, um, the word made flesh, the um, one who, makes a way for us to God and the one who gives us eternal life uh, like the serpent lifted up in the wilderness like the bread that God gave from heaven like the water that God brought from the rock and Jesus brings to fulfillment all of those things um, there are other ways in which Moses points directly to Christ we've talked I think at length about Deuteronomy 18 and the prediction of a coming prophet but these are important ways and they're testimonies that John draws out in his gospel that are to be um, that, that should encourage us to believe, that should encourage us to recognize who Jesus is, that he is the one who comes as the fulfillment of these things. And if we are predisposed to trust Moses, as we ought to be, then we ought to believe those things. Now there's, um, I mentioned at the outset that we have kind of this threefold uh, testimony, how Moses bears witness to Jesus, but some perceive that witness to, uh, to be against him. We saw that with the way the Sabbath was used against him. And yet, actually, Moses, in that action, becomes a witness against those who reject him. I want to draw your attention to just a couple of ways in which that, uh, we see that. One is in chapter 7, and then the other one will be in chapter 9, and we'll close with those two. But there's a lot of irony, and, I, and you, we ought to note the irony that John uses as he writes. Um, and you'll see it as you put the, we put these two texts together. In chapter 7, the, the context here is the Israelites are celebrating the Feast of Booths. And Jesus' brothers, they don't really believe in him. And so they say, look, look, if you're the Christ, go reveal yourself. The Feast of Booths, go to Jerusalem. Let everybody know. And he says, my time has not yet come. I'm not going to Jerusalem. But he does go, just not publicly. He comes in secret. In the middle of the feast, then he comes and he begins to speak to the people. And um, we'll pick up what he says there in, uh, in verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning, when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. 
If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. So you see again, Jesus draws our attention to Moses. Uh, not only to Moses, we see he draws attention to uh, the testimony of the Father and uh, his own credibility as one who doesn't seek his own glory, but the glory of the one who sent him. But we're focusing on Moses and the, the irony of the fact that um, he confronts them with failing. You know, they, 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 they value the law so much. They value Moses so much. They think that Jesus is discredited on the base of the Sabbath. And yet, thou shalt not murder. <laughs> and they're seeking to kill him, right? And they're also bearing false witness about it. Why do you, you know, they, who's seeking to kill you? We've already read in chapter 5 that they were trying to kill him. Right? That, they were, that they were trying all the more to do it because he made himself equal with the, with the Father. And yet, you know, they, they deny it here. So you have this idea of Moses um, con, you know, accusing them that we saw from chapter 5. Here the accusation is leveled, levied by Jesus against them along those same lines. Um, and then they're confronted for their hypocrisy. You think about um, Jesus healing the man on the Sabbath. And he brings up their own practice. They recognize that the law commands that you, should, you, you, you must circumcise your children on the eighth day. Well, sometimes you just can't help it. Your child is born in such a, way, at such a day when the eighth day will fall on a Sabbath day. So what do you do? Does the rabbi circumcise on the seventh day or the ninth day? No, he does it on the Sabbath. Well, isn't that work? Yeah, but they understand the priorities and they understand how to discern what's, what takes precedence. And so it's the Sabbath day and they recognize, uh, yeah, we still circumcise on the eighth day. That takes precedence over this seventh day ritual. And yet Jesus has done something even greater than that, making a man's whole body whole. A, again, a new creation type work. And now they judge him for it. Um, when he's done the greater work, one that is also just as fitting on the Sabbath. So you see how they're confronted by the law. And um, even as they, they think that uh, um, it's Moses who testifies against him, it's really Moses that testifies against them. People are going to think in that moment, oh, maybe this is really the Christ. So verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this man whom they seek to kill? I, I, and here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that he, this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. I want you to key on that. Just re remember the, the, that, those words because you'll see the irony in a little bit. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I have come from. But I have not come on my, of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him. For I come from him, and he has sent me. So they're seeking to arrest him after this. But there's conflict and there's confusion. At the end of chapter 7, uh, Nicodemus speaks out. He confronts them for their hypocrisy again in another ironic way. They want to arrest him, the, the Pharisees. And Nicodemus will say, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So Nicodemus wants them to be faithful to the law, and they just they, they dismiss it. And they dismiss it because they say, we know where he came from. He's from Galilee. He can't be the prophet. He's not from. And the irony there is they don't really know where he, they don't know that he's from Bethlehem originally, but they think they know where he's from. Well, the last text that I want to look at is, is in chapter 9. And uh, it's just a couple verses, really. Uh, but I'll give you the context again and we'll close on this. Verse 28 and 29 will be the verses we look at. But the context again is this, that Jesus has done another miraculous healing, this time not an invalid but a man born blind, and he did it on the Sabbath again, and involved a pool like that earlier healing, um, and the Pharisees called the man who was healed to account, and this... Um, this, these issues um, ensue where uh, you know, there's questions about 
who did this. There's uncertainty about who did it. Um, so finally, he comes back before them a second time. That's in verse 24. You can see that he comes before them a second time. And they said to him in verse 26, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already. You would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? They reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, listen to these words, we do not know where he comes from. I think that's ironic. <laughs> you know, this, uh, they just said, when the Christ comes, no one will know where he comes from. And we, now they confess, we don't know where he comes from, even though earlier, there's, the irony is that in, the, in an earthly sense, yes, he comes from Bethlehem. I don't know where they, just, they came to the idea that no one will know where the Christ comes from. But in a heavenly sense, they don't know. They don't know that he's come from God. It's not that it's not made plain to them. It's not, no, it's not that it's not uh, been declared or not been um, said. They just won't acknowledge it. They won't believe that he really is come from God. And yet, and, so, and, they, and they think because they're following Moses and they're not really. So verse 29, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered him, answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out, meaning they excommunicated him from the synagogue. They uh, regard, decided that they're going to regard him from now on as a Gentile. So to bring it all to a close then, it, what you see is that, that same pattern that continues to ensue. Moses testifies to Jesus in the ways that we've seen. They perceive Moses instead is a witness against him because they fail to rightly interpret Moses. They fail to understand that Moses was to be superseded by the greater prophet who was to come. So when he comes, and that grace that John spoke about in one, chapter 1 in the prologue, grace upon grace, for the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, that, that greater grace that comes through Christ, they rejected it because they wanted to subordinate him to Moses. They wanted, they, they, they weren't willing that M Moses should, um, should uh, cede his place, if you will, to the Christ, even though Moses himself testified that that was necessarily what was to take place, the, the character that would, um, uh, of the, that greater prophet. So it's not a, it's not an issue, it's not a problem with the testimony of Moses in the end. His, Moses, his testimony, as John tells us, is clear. His testimony is sure concerning the person and work of Christ. The problem concerns those who fail to receive that testimony because they wrongly interpret Moses in a way that is uh, legalistic and self-righteous, not a way that is um, marked by grace and a proper recognition of what Moses really says. Let me, uh, let me close, let me uh, invite comments or questions um, at, uh, at this point as we uh, reflect on those things. Think about how uh, Moses himself as a witness bears witness to the Christ. Matt. Yeah, it actually, it turns around in the other direction and they show themselves not credible interpreters of, of Moses because they fail to actually embody uh, and, and, and the law in their own lives. And you see that just in the, all the ironies, the way Nicodemus confronts them. You'll see it when they arrest Jesus and they'll say things like, uh, Pilate will say, you crucify him or you kill him. And they say, our law doesn't permit us to kill a man. And they, they're right. And yet, just because they're letting Pilate be there, the sword in their hands, they're still doing it. Um, they're failing to actually follow Moses' commandments and demonstrate themselves not to be credible interpreters of his, of his word. 
Um, Jesus himself does embody those things. But yeah, he does do things that are, if you're an Israelite in that context, how do you understand a guy doing the things he does on the Sabbath? Well, you understand by recognizing his divine status. You, you recognize his, uh, as, the, as Matthew, Mark, and Luke would put it, he himself is Lord of the Sabbath. And as John puts it, um, my father's working, uh, so am I. Divine prerogatives. What other questions or comments? Yeah. Yeah, the blind man could see it. The formerly blind man, but the blind man could see it. He'd only been seen for a few days, but these guys who are supposed to be teachers of the law, they'll they'll later in that chapter say are, to Jesus, "Are you are you calling us blind?" But it's like, "Oh, you say that you see. Now the you know the judgment sticks. Um, you condemn yourselves." Is kind of his answer. Well, um, without any of the questions or comments then, let's, um, let's close in a word of prayer and have some time then to pray together as well. Father in heaven, we, we do thank you for your word and we thank you for your son, for sending your son into the world in our likeness for our sake that we might be redeemed by your great grace that you showed us through him. Indeed, grace and truth has come to us through our Lord Jesus so, Lord, we pray that you would make us to be people who do see, who do receive, who do seek to consistently honor your word unhypocritically, first and foremost and primarily through faith. We know that we can't do this except by your power as you give us of your spirit. So we pray that you would work in us by your spirit to give us that life, and to conform us into the image of your son, that we might indeed be those people who have found eternal life and those people from whom rivers of living water do flow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.